0: Before we take another look at God's word, let's pray. Father, as we open your word and as we hear uh, your word preached this morning, uh, Lord, we pray uh, what we just prayed in that song, that you would be our vision. Lord, may your Holy Spirit open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your word. May he enlighten the eyes of our hearts that we may understand what we read and that we may be changed by what we read. Lord, Um, your word has something here for each one of us to hear and to benefit from. Lord, uh, those areas in our lives that are not in line with your word, Lord, may you convict us of that this morning. May you grant us repentance. And Lord, we thank you for all those promises that we've seen in your word so far of your forgiveness and your grace and your loving kindness and your redemption, Lord, that we don't need to fear to come and hear from your word and be convicted because we know that with you, we have forgiveness. If we turn from our sins and we look to you, you forgive, you wash us clean, Lord. So we don't need to fear coming to your word, Lord. Instead, we should eagerly come, Lord, that we we should want to know um, if there's areas of our lives that, uh, that need to be realigned. And Lord, may we receive encouragement from your word as well this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're continuing to work through Paul's letter, first letter to the Corinthians. So if you want to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We're going to be looking at chapter 7, verses 8 through 16 this morning. And let me read that for us. Chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians, starting in verse 8. Paul says, But I say to the unmarried and to widows, that it is good for them if they remain even as I. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. But to the married I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband, But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and that the husband should not divorce his wife. But to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away." For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? To introduce this message, I wanted to read another um, somewhat extended portion of Scripture from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 19. So if you'll bear with me, I'm going to read Matthew 19, verses 3 through 12. And there Jesus is addressing marriage as well. So let me read that. Matthew 19, starting in verse 3. Some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him, and asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh." What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it has not been this way. And I say to you, Whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, not all men can accept this statement, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, and there are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He who is able to accept this, let him accept it. So here, Jesus is bringing a reality check to the Pharisees as well as to his disciples. He's telling them just how binding the marriage covenant is. And after hearing how strict the marriage commitment really is, the disciples responded this way in verse 10. If the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it is better not to marry. You see, to the hard-hearted, marriage is going to seem like a straitjacket that it would be better not to be tied up in. The disciples seemed to have been conditioned by their culture's loose understanding of the marriage commitment. But Jesus, he then goes on to balance their thinking by reminding them that singleness is no walk in the park either. Despite the strictness of the marriage covenant and man's hard-heartedness, many will not be able to bear being single. And so, as we've been seeing with the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians, if you have the Constitution to accept being single and celibate, fine. But if not, then marry. And Jesus supports that in what we just read. That issue of marriage and divorce that Jesus was addressing Paul is addressing these same issues with the Corinthians. Now the believers in Corinth, their situation was a little bit different, but they also had a deficient understanding of marriage. Unlike the audience that Jesus was addressing, the Corinthians had been saved out of paganism. And probably in many of their cases, that paganism had been mixed with promiscuity and so it was taking these believers a while to get accustomed to what God was requiring of them in the marriage relationship. And in this passage that we're looking at this morning, we're going to see Paul address three categories of people in the church. He's going to address those who are unmarried. He's going to address those who are married to another believer. And then he's going to address those who are married to another to an unbeliever. And what we will read here in this passage, keep in mind, is not everything the Bible has to say about these three categories of people. The Corinthians had very specific problems that Paul needed to address in a very specific way, but that does not mean that what he says here is irrelevant to us. It is extremely relevant to us. Our culture today has many similarities with that of ancient Corinth. And not only that, but this is the word of God. And as such, our consciences are bound to what it says here. And the other thing is, each one of you fits into one of these categories here today. You're either unmarried, or you're married to a believer, or you're married to an unbeliever. So there is something For you to hear and so we all need to to sit up and pay attention so let's see who paul addresses first in verses eight through nine the ones he addresses first are the unmarried those who are unmarried verses eight through nine look at verse eight paul says but i say to the unmarried and to widows that it is good for them if they remain even as i now What was Paul's situation? We saw in verse 7 that he was single at the time he was writing this. He was celibate. And we saw in verse 7 how he would prefer that everybody be that way. And so what he says in verse 8 is just in keeping with what he said in verse 7. He says, it would be good for you who are unmarried to stay that way. Now why would that be good? Drop down to verse 32. Look at what Paul says in verse 32. He says, but I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But the one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife, and his interests are divided. That is why it's, it's good in, in Paul's view here to be single, because you can be more single-mindedly focused on the things of the Lord. Now, is that often the motivation today for people to want to be single? No. They want to be single so that they can be free to spend all their money, all their free time, all their energies on themselves. Call their own shots on how they spend all of those things. They don't want to have to share that with a spouse. But that's not what makes singleness good for a Christian. Selfishness is not good. Selfishness is sin. So Paul tells us what makes singleness good. What makes it good is the opportunity it affords the single person to be able to use their finances, to use their time, to use their energy in that more single-mindedly focused way for the glory of God, to bring pleasure to the Lord Jesus Christ, to further his kingdom. That's what makes singleness good For the Christian. And if you are an unmarried Christian today, the question for you is, is that how you are leveraging your singleness? Whether you're a widow or a widower or you've never been married, how are you using your singleness? Because if you're using it on yourself to pursue your desires, your plans, your goals, to pamper yourself You are squandering the opportunity that God has given you. He's given you a wide open door to pour yourself out to bring him glory. Are you seeking him out about how he would have you to use this season of your life, whether you stay single or not? That's a question to consider. Now, what if you are unmarried, but you do not feel that you've been given the gift of celibacy by God? Maybe everything within you longs to have a spouse. Maybe your arms ache to hold someone like Caleb and Kelly held each other up here on this stage yesterday. You can empathize totally with God's declaration in Genesis 2 that it's not good for man to be alone. I know I felt that way. Does verse 8 consign you to a life of torture an unfulfilled desire no it does not instead those longings that you have may indicate that god is not calling you to a life of singleness and celibacy and we see that in verse 9 paul goes on he gives an exception here he says and it's a it's a very big broad wide exception because like jesus said not many can accept what you disciples are saying about not getting married He says in verse 9 here, But if they do not have self-control, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. If you have not been given the gift of celibacy, that is, if you have not been given the ability to be content in your singleness and to be undistracted by sexual longing, then for you to pursue singleness is probably unwise. To pursue singleness in your case would be to unnecessarily expose yourself to strong temptation. It would be better if you pursue marriage. Because marriage glorifies God. Sexual immorality does not. So, if you lack the ability to be celibate, then generally speaking, Paul says, get married. So, that's the first category of believers that Paul is addressing in this passage, those who are unmarried. But now, in verses 10 through 11, he shifts and he addresses a second category of people, and those that he is speaking to now are those who are married to a believer. Those who are married to a believer. What about them? Paul addresses them here, and we know that he's addressing married believers, that is equally yoked partners because when we come to verses 12 through 16 what does paul say in verse 12 but to the rest i say and we see that he's speaking to believers who are married to who unbelievers so that only leaves who in verses 10 through 11 that he's speaking to believers who are married to other believers so that's why we know he's addressing those who are married to believers so what does he say verse 10 he begins but to the married I give instructions, not I, but the Lord. Now, what in the world does Paul mean when he says, I'm giving you this instruction, but not I, the Lord is doing that? Well, he seems to simply mean that the instructions that he's about to give in verse 10 come from the very words that Jesus spoke during his earthly ministry. Hey, we have record. This is what Jesus said. I'm relaying to you what Jesus said. And indeed, when we go on to read what Paul is instructing, we know that it's the very same thing that Jesus said. We have record of it in the Gospels. So what is he instructing here in verse 10? That the wife should not leave her husband, but if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and that the husband should not divorce his wife. Now, we're going to see that this perfectly lines up with what the Lord Jesus said on this matter. For example, and you don't have to turn there, I'll read it to you, but if you want to write it down, Mark 10 and verse 11. Listen to what Jesus said in Mark 10, 11. He said, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man. She is committing adultery. That's a pretty categorical statement. The bottom line for a man and woman who are both believers joined together in the covenant of marriage is divorce is not an option. Now, if we were to turn to Matthew 19 and look at verse nine, which I've already read, we would see there is an exception. Matthew 19, verse 9. Listen to what he says there. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Jesus tells us there that when one spouse commits sexual immorality, that is, when a person joins his or her body to someone who is not his spouse, He or she has broken apart the marriage covenant by his or her own sin. In that case, the faithful spouse is permitted, not commanded, but permitted to divorce because the sinning spouse has already broken that covenant. That's the exception. Now, when we come back to 1 Corinthians 7 and we read verses 10 and 11, notice Paul doesn't mention that exception here. He makes no mention of it. And we could ask, why not? Well, I don't think we can know for sure, but I was listening to Alistair Begg preach on this issue and I thought he made a good point, and I'll try to make that point in my own words here. But the Corinthian congregation, remember, as we saw in chapters five and six, they lived in an immoral society. And many of them were saved out of that immoral lifestyle, and many of them were still struggling to leave that immoral lifestyle behind them. So if Paul, in writing this letter to this very confused, very struggling congregation, gave them this exception, it very well may be that a whole host of marriages in this church would just break apart. And that would not be a healthy thing for this struggling church. They didn't need that at that moment. What they needed was to be instructed on what marriage is and what is required of Christians in marriage so that their marriages could become what God wanted their marriages to become. This exception was not something that would be helpful to them at this point in their walks with the Lord. And it's quite remarkable that Paul does not give that exception here because it implies something very amazing. It implies that even marriages that have been broken by infidelity can be restored and healed based on the all-sufficient sacrifice of Christ. Because Paul is not telling them the option here. He's assuming that these marriages that in the past have been just riddled with all of this immorality, that they can still become the kind of married men and women that he wants them to be. And that should give everyone in a broken marriage hope. In verse 11, some of your translations may have parentheses and inside of those parentheses he mentions but if she does leave she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband by implication the same would be true for the husband if he left he would have to be remain unmarried or be reconciled to his wife in other words paul is saying if you disobey the lord's command you certainly must not compound that sin by then going the next step and committing adultery. He's not saying, you know, it's really okay if you do divorce, just make sure you don't do this. He's saying, if you defy the Lord here, don't add to that by defying him here. That's what he's saying. And it matches up again with what Jesus said in Matthew's gospel and Mark's gospel. We saw that Jesus said if a man or a woman has an unbiblical divorce and then goes and marries another person, they've committed adultery. Paul is saying here in verse 11, you must not do this. You must not do this. Now, does this mean that if you happen to have had an unbiblical divorce with a fellow believer and you have already married someone else, that is, you have already committed adultery, does that mean that your walk with Christ is finished? No, it does not mean that. Yes, you do need to repent. You do need to confess your sin before God. You do need to ask His forgiveness. But then, being forgiven, that marriage that you are now in, that marriage that started out as adulterous, has now been washed by the blood of Christ and is no longer to be considered adulterous. God can still be glorified in the marriage that you are now in, even if you entered into it sinfully. Remember, our God is a redeemer, a redeeming God. Just look at the life of David and the adultery he committed with Bathsheba and how the Lord covered his great sin. However, if you have already had an unbiblical divorce with a fellow believer, but you have not yet remarried someone else, then you must remain unmarried or else be reconciled with your spouse. Or if you are married currently to a believer and you are considering an unbiblical divorce, you need to repent from that sinful course of action. Do not, I need to emphasize this, do not presume upon God's grace. Don't say to yourself, well, I'll just divorce or I'll just marry this other person and then I'll repent and then God will forgive me and then my marriage will be okay. You need to understand that if you are reasoning like that, you are giving evidence that you're not yet a believer. I want you to see this, turn with me to Romans chapter 6, Romans chapter 6 verses 15 to 16. Romans 6 verse 15, Paul writes, what then, shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Does being under grace give me the license? To just go and sin? To Paul, that's a disgusting thought because he says, may it never be. Verse 16, do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. So if you're standing at that crossroads in your marriage and you're thinking, well, I just got to get out of here, Let me sin, and then i know God will forgive me. Paul is saying if you enslave yourself to this sin, that path leads in death, or ends in death. It doesn't lead to forgiveness and life, it ends in death. Paul is saying don't kid yourselves. Don't presume upon the grace of God. A true believer will not treat the shed blood of Christ as a license to keep sinning. A true believer recognizes that Jesus died to save him or her from sin. He didn't die to save you, to give you the permission to keep on sinning. A true believer will strive imperfectly, to be sure. But a true believer will strive, by the grace of God, to live in a way that honors Jesus' sacrifice. So those are Paul's instructions to those who are married to a believer. Now he turns to a third class of people. Now he begins to address those who are married to an unbeliever. And we see this in verses 12 through 16. Those who are married to an unbeliever. Now the Corinthian church may have had serious questions regarding this subject, because if you were to go over to chapter five, and look at verse 9. You'll see that Paul wrote a previous letter to them. And in that previous letter he told them don't associate with immoral people. And without qualifications on that, you can understand how if you have as a believer listen to that and you know that your spouse is one of those immoral people, you might be wondering, "Boy, am I is that my get out of jail free card?" Can I leave this person? Or you might be wondering, am I supposed to leave this person? So Paul is going to clarify that question for them here. When these believers in Corinth had heard Paul proclaim the gospel, they repented, they believed. But in at least some of their cases, their spouse did not follow suit. So some of them were still married to an unbeliever. It wasn't always the case that the whole household came to the Lord. Their spouses were either persisting in paganism or they were persisting in Judaism without having accepted Christ yet. What was the believer to do who had been saved while the other spouse remained unsaved? That's what Paul is going to speak to here in these verses. But first we've got to clear up a little confusing statement here in verse 12. Because there Paul goes again, he says, But to the rest I say, not the Lord. What does he mean by that? He's saying, this is something I'm saying, not something the Lord said. Is he giving us permission there to either obey what he's about to say or disobey? Because it wasn't the Lord saying it? Is that what he's doing? Is he giving us an out there? No. Because remember who Paul is. Chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, verse 1. What is Paul? We've got servant. Any other ideas? I heard it. Joanne? An apostle. Paul is an apostle. An apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. An apostle is a sent one. Paul has been sent by who? By Jesus Christ. Christ and as an Apostle he has been given the authority by Jesus Christ to plant churches and to instruct those churches in the ways of Jesus Christ so when Paul is writing as an Apostle as he is here in 1st Corinthians he is speaking with the full authority of Jesus Christ authority that Christ himself has delegated to Paul and since that's the case then when Paul says here in chapter 7 verse 12, I say, not the Lord, it seems quite clear that he simply means that the instructions he is about to lay down are instructions that he received not from uh, recorded history about what the Lord said during his earthly ministry. No, this is direct revelation from the Lord that he's relaying to these believers. This is not a saying that you can find in the gospels that Jesus actually said but it doesn't make it any less authoritative for their lives. Because in Jesus' earthly ministry, he did not have the occasion to address the same situation that Paul is addressing here. This is a new situation, new circumstances, new instruction is needed, and it wasn't something the Lord talked about during his earthly ministry. So when Paul says, I say not the Lord, that does not mean that he's, not speaking with apostolic authority here. He clearly is. It's not optional what he's about to say. Paul goes on in verse 12. He says, to the rest, I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. So Paul says to these believers that if they have an unbelieving spouse and that unbelieving spouse agrees to stay in the marriage with them, they must not divorce their unbelieving spouse. Why not? Paul gives the reason in verse 14. He says, For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. It's interesting to observe Paul's logic here, because the logic he's using here runs in completely a different direction than logic he used. Back in chapter 6. It's not contradictory. They're just different situations. But it's interesting how in one situation logic runs one way and in another situation it runs the other way. To show you what I'm talking about, look at chapter 6, verses 12 through 20. There, Paul was showing that when a believer unites himself to someone who is not his spouse... He is defiled by that union. He says you sin against your own body when you do that. But here in chapter 7, Paul is telling us that when a person who is already married becomes a believer, while the other spouse does not, that believer does not become defiled by their unbelieving spouse. It's actually the opposite. That believer, instead of being defiled by their unbelieving spouse that believer actually sanctifies his his or her unbelieving spouse. And not only their spouse, but their children as well. It's similar to how when in the Gospels, you know, a leper had to go shouting, unclean, unclean, and if you touched him, what happened to you? You became unclean. But when Jesus went up and touched him, what happened? The leper became clean. And it's similar in an unequally yoked marriage when you're saved but your spouse is not Christ in you makes that marriage clean so you don't have to worry about whether or not I should divorce this person Paul says no don't do that it's it can still be a God-honoring marriage it's a still a holy marriage you have sanctified it Christ in you has sanctified that marriage as well as your children now what does Paul mean when he says sanctify He does not mean that if you get saved, it automatically saves your spouse, saves your children. That's not what he's saying. Because when we get to verse 16, Paul clearly shows that the question of the unbelieving spouse's salvation is still remaining to be answered. So Paul does not mean, he's not talking about salvation here in verse 14. Instead, it means that if you As a believer, have an unbelieving spouse. You don't need to be troubled by unbiblical unbiblical thoughts that your unequally yoked marriage is somehow an unclean marriage. You don't need to be troubled by thoughts that you cannot bring glory to God in your unequally yoked marriage. No, you can. You can. Now again, I want to be careful to say here that Paul is addressing believers who are already in an unequally yoked marriage. He's not giving single believers the permission here to marry unbelievers. That's not what he's doing. For example, verse 39, what is his instructions to a widow seeking to remarry? Can she marry anyone? What's the restriction there in verse 39? The very end of the verse, only in the Lord She can remarry only in the Lord, only a believer. So Paul is not giving permission here to a believer who is single to go ahead and be able to marry an unbeliever. He's just addressing those who are already in an unequally yoked marriage. Now, when we come to verse 15, we see Paul give an exception here. Verse 15, he says, Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or the sister is not under bondage or is not enslaved in such cases, but God has called us to peace. So if after you've come to Christ, your unbelieving spouse becomes determined to end the marriage, Paul gives the command, let him or let her leave. There's nothing you can do to stop that. A marriage needs the commitment of two individuals, not just one. You don't have the ability to force an unbeliever to remain in the marriage with you, and you have no obligation to do that. The end of verse 15, Paul says, but God has called us to peace, or literally, God has called us in peace. And that's a bit of a tricky phrase because it's hard to put your finger on exactly what Paul is referring to when he says that. And as I was studying this, commentators are split on on who Paul is referring to when he says, but God has called us in peace. Some think that that phrase only refers to the exception in verse 15. They take him to mean this. If your unbelieving spouse wants to leave, don't cause strife by trying to stop that from happening because God has called us to peace, not to strife. Others think that this phrase refers to the whole of verses 12 through 15. And they take Paul to mean this. If your unbelieving spouse agrees to stay with you, do not seek divorce. But if the unbelieving spouse wants to leave, then let him leave. But God has called you in peace, meaning this. If God called you to himself while you are already in a peaceful marriage, do not cause strife by trying to break up that marriage when it doesn't need to be broken up. Now, I I lean toward that second view there because it better fits the literal sense of the words. It doesn't say God called you to peace, It's but God called you in peace. And it better fits the whole context of the chapter. This entire chapter, from beginning to end, has as its central message to remain as you are. For example, next time we're in 1 Corinthians, we'll go through verses 17 to 24. It's the core of the chapter where Paul says remain as you are. Whatever station of life you are in, when God called you to himself, Don't automatically seek to change your station in life. God saved you when he saved you for a reason. If you were in a peaceful marriage as an unbeliever when God saved you, you are not to seek to blow up that marriage after God saves you because God likely intends to use you for his glory in that unequally yoked marriage. That's why Paul says what he says in verse 16. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? If your unbelieving spouse is willing to remain in the marriage, that is, if it's still a peaceful marriage, you have an incredible witnessing opportunity. The Lord may use you to help lead your spouse to faith in Christ. We see a similar situation in Peter's first letter. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 2. There he says, instructing wives, he says, In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste, and respectful behavior if your spouse is an unbeliever there is no one who is better positioned in the life of your spouse to bring that person to christ than you you are the one in the best position now the question for you how do you apply this to your life if you as a believer have an unbelieving spouse is all you get from this passage the thought well I just can't divorce this person if they're willing to stay living with me. No, there's more to the application than this. If you have an unbelieving spouse, are you presenting Christ to him or her? Not in a nagging way, but in a way that communicates to your spouse that Jesus is the best thing that could ever happen to him or her. Presenting Christ in a way that demonstrates your love for your spouse and your sincere concern for his or her eternal soul. Are you doing that if your spouse doesn't know Christ yet? Do not be content to allow your spouse to slip into hell without lifting even one finger to pursue his or her salvation. This is the person that you are one with. Everything within you should yearn and desire for this person to be with you in heaven and to come to know Christ. So love them and pursue them to that end. Now to wrap up, what we've seen here is not all that the Bible has to say about marriage and divorce. In fact, in this passage, Paul does not really seem to address when it is allowable for Christians to remarry. That's just not in view in this passage here. Paul's not commenting on that. But I know that that question is going to be in many people's minds, so just to not leave you hanging in suspense so much, I, I will tell you my position on this, and if you want to ask me afterwards, I can explain more of my reasoning. But I'll tell you my position as I read and understand the Scriptures. As I see it, when I look at the teachings of Jesus and I look at the teachings of Paul and what the rest of the Bible has to say, there are two cases in which it is allowable for a Christian to remarry. First, it is permissible for a Christian to remarry if his or her spouse commits sexual immorality. That's the first case. The second case is this it is also permissible. For a Christian to remarry if his or her unbelieving spouse abandons him or her. Now you might ask, well, what if my spouse is a Christian and my spouse abandons me? They profess to know Christ, but they abandon me. Paul doesn't have anything to say about what I should do well, obviously, you, you still can't force that spouse to stay with you, can you? But in such a case, if you have a believing spouse and that spouse abandons you, the Lord has given us instructions as to what to do. Matthew 18, right? We follow our Lord's instructions for church discipline. We lovingly pursue that sinning spouse. If they're leaving without any biblical grounds... We pursue them and we encourage him or her to repent. If that spouse persists in unrepentant sin, even after being spoken to privately, even after being spoken to by two or three witnesses, even after the whole church comes and and entreats them to repent, if that person still presses on in divorcing his or her spouse, even though there's no grounds to do so, That spouse is then to be treated as an unbeliever. That's the end result of the church discipline process if a person doesn't repent. We don't get to skip Matthew 18 just because our brother or sister in Christ happens to be our spouse. Instead, how much more should we seek reconciliation with that brother or sister if that person happens to be my spouse? However, if that spouse still goes through with the divorce, after all of that, and does not have biblical grounds for doing so, then he or she gives evidence that he or she is not a what? A believer. And in that case, verses 12 through 16 apply to your situation. I also believe there's a very good case to be made that serious abuse by a spouse is a severe form of abandonment and would fit under that second case not all would agree with me on these two cases but I'm just telling you how I see it just to not leave those questions in your mind but I do want to point out that these issues are very can get very complex and so it is unwise to ever pursue divorce without seeking counsel seeking counsel from your brothers and sisters in Christ seeking counsel from the leadership in your church You need need others to come alongside you in making those kinds of decisions. But lastly, the main takeaway I want you to get from this passage is this. No matter what situation of life God has called you to himself in, whether it's as being unmarried, married to a believer, or married to an unbeliever, God can use you in a mighty way to bring glory to himself. He uses all kinds of people in all kinds of situations. 2 Corinthians 5.15 says that Jesus died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. So if you are single, live for Christ in your singleness. If you are married to a believer, live for Christ in that marriage. If you are married to an unbeliever, live for Christ in that marriage as well. Let's pray.